Hey, welcome to A Big Story Rewind. Podcast has undergone a few iterations since 2019. I've sought this mythical, pure conversation with inspiring creators over the years. And each season, I feel like it just that bit closer to having that give and take conversation that I forget I'm actually recording and I fool myself that we're having a real, <laughs> a real talk between friends. While the show is different now, there's still so many amazing episodes in the archives that I want to share with you. So be prepared for two more hosts. Um, there's a lot more talk focused on images appearing on the screen while we were recording, but that stuff really doesn't affect the heart of the story and our guests' unique tales. I hope you enjoy this big story rewind. Thanks for listening. All right. Hey, you know, I'm going to try this. Ready? Boom. All right. Welcome Ooh. to the Story Podcast. I'm Alex Morrissey. I'm Gary Dufna. Today we have a wonderful guest. We have Gene Ha with us. Yeah. Hello, everybody. Hey, there Gene. he is. Boom. I didn't play the guitar in this. <laughs> That's Brian Ballas. That was me under the, t- under the camera. That would be so Ooh. rad. Wouldn't that be a, wouldn't that be a thing like hey what like you do this like pre podcast interview saying so what uh, do you play any instruments oh yeah I play this okay well here's the sheet music we'll record live oh. <laughs> I'd be like what a what a what a way to like you know mug a guest um, so, yeah, just yeah. meeting you here play this yeah <laughs> actually on a music podcast that'd be kind of awesome if they had every guest play mm-hmm. the theme song at least at the end of the show or something. That would be fantastic. We should well, let's let's change the formatting. Do you play any uh, instruments, Gene? <laughs> Quick, grab your mandolin. Let's get you going. Can sing it. <laughs> oh man! So, Gene, hey, how you doing? We were actually having, as you said, a wonderful little talk about uh, the the Dune film and all sorts of cool things before ah, we had, Dune, we had huh? today. Um, yeah, I'm 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 still just really fascinated, blown away. I can't remember. I was texting a close friend right after I got out of the movie. And I said, like, so are they like, is Dune, like, are they, did they shoot number two? And he's like, oh no, like they're waiting to find out what the box office return was. And like, I was quickly like telling everybody, go see Dune, please, please. (laughs) (laughs) I like, I can't remember that. There just seems to be like a bunch of films, like in our, like in our sort of our youth growing up, like they throw it out there and then you never get the follow up. Like it because it just flops. Yeah. You know, the worst, best, greatest example would be, uh, you know, Buckaroo Bonsai. Like oh, we, yeah. we never got we never got to find out what happens. So I think it was a comic book for a while, wasn't it? <laughs> you can read it. I think it became a comic book eventually, but I think it started off as a movie. But yeah, yeah. No, I think yeah, it was the name was. I mean, it was a good movie, but I mean, the name itself and the concept were so strong, it kind of felt like it needed to be expanded just because it was such a good idea as opposed to, hmm. you know, anything else about it. I just loved it. It's like oh, you yeah. could do anything with it. it. Yeah. I mean, it just, yeah. I mean, it was just one of those cool things. I mean, clearly with somebody who came up, uh, sort of stumbled on a name and was like, I need to write a screenplay about this because like <laughs> it's, it's, it's a screenplay worthy name. So yeah. uh, where, where are you in this nation of ours, Gene? 
Oh, uh, I live outside Chicago in Berwyn, Illinois, um, which if you watch uh, Svengoolie, you've probably heard it used as a punchline. Svengoolie. Wow. <laughs> yeah, Berwyn. That's me. That's where I live. Nice. Nice. Um, I love Chicago. That's actually one of my, that, that city is a, is unbelievably cool. You have, C2, you have C2E2 this weekend? Uh, weekend after this weekend. So yeah. Weekend. Okay. So it's, it's coming up. Are you going? Uh, yes. Uh, I will be, uh, Artist Alley, table K9, one of the easiest ones to remember. Nice. Yeah, that's super easy. You might, you might, <laughs> everyone's going to, all the, all the Whovians will come up to you. They'll be like, <laughs> hey, like hey, no, I'm, I'm just, I'm a comic dude. Um, <laughs> so I thought you going to be the next Doctor Who. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that's true. I actually did hear you were going to be the next Doctor Who. <laughs> we'll, we'll just keep that rumor rolling. Yeah. My, my first, my first contact with, uh, Whovians, I guess, I don't know if what they prefer to be called. I mean, I'm a huge Doctor Who fan, but it was, a New York comic convention, I think it's like 1984, 84, 85-ish. Oh, wow. um, I went there because Art Adams was 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 there. I'm like, oh, wow, like how, like how often were you going to get to see Art Adams? You know, I, right. little did I know, a lot eventually. But um, <laughs> I, it was one of those things where I'm like, okay, cool, I'll go. And this kid comes up to me totally decked out like um, – Tom, ah, Tom Baker. Yeah, yeah, Tom Baker. So you've got the everything going on, the hat, and everything, and he walks up and he goes, "Jelly Baby," and I was like, "What's <laughs> going on here?" <laughs> like it was so bizarre. It was, it was, he was a really nice kid. I and it was good. I mean, it tasted good to Jelly Baby. I, I'll give it up. Um, <laughs> so that was my first, because otherwise, like Doctor Who was that weird thing on PBS, like late, yeah. like, late at night, and that music came on and freaked uh, <laughs> I, in, I grew up in South Bend. We had a uh, Doctor Who on both the Chicago Public Television station we got and the local South Bend station we got. And uh, the Tom Baker Doctor Who outfit was a really good um, outfit for certain types of tall, skinny geek guys in my neighborhood to wear if they were trying to get um, trying to get some action with other geeks. So, oh, okay. Because oh. <laughs> that qualifier was really important. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? I want to live there. <laughs> wow, that's that's so funny. Yeah. Well, yeah. So you got double, you got sort of double dipping of, of so you could have two worlds of Doctor Who stories going on in your life at the same time. Double dipping. Yeah. Um, and I love a bit like Buck Rubanze. Like, I'm not totally in love with the movie Buck Rubanze, but I love the concept. Yeah, me too. <laughs> And I'm also the same way with Doctor Who, where it's like, oh, that's so great. And then I'll watch an episode and it's kind of like, that's a great character. And you were not working on that story plot at all, were you? You just, <laughs> that's kind of, that's not really the point of the TV show. No, I don't think so. I mean, it's 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 a lot of that sort of last second solution kind of stuff where, you know, like he's been holding this secret card the whole time. You're like, all right, well, cool. But, you know. <laughs> But I think, yeah, definitely. But, you know, the actors have always been Doctor Who have always sold, you know, the character yeah. so well that you kind of get on board for the the fun and excitement. Yeah. Um, oh, wait, though, do I have a sensible explanation for every season of Doctor Who? Oh, hit me. OK, so a bit like Murder, She Wrote, Doctor mm -hmm. Who's a person who goes from world to world and era to era. And somehow wherever he shows up, some type of cosmic threat shows up that's trying to destroy the world. Yeah. Seems, and it's just by accident. Just, almost always coincidental it is <laughs> yeah and if you know like the 
the fa famous fan theory on murder she wrote it's that the murder novelist is the one who's committing all the murders and then frame somebody every week oh i love that that's a brilliant concept yeah but doctor who has the advantage that uh he or she um is able to warp time so right doctor who loves to be to be a know-it-all loves to impress uh their companion with being able to fix any situation and knowing everything about the situation even though he's never met them before that's no it makes complete sense. yeah no no it makes complete sense you're like oh yeah. of course like you're like like yeah you know angela lansbury's going well that person did it well yeah because you wrote the whole thing to make it seem like that person did it right and therefore dr who is like uh, you know a few days or months even or years before he goes yeah. off on that adventure engineers the crisis to happen and then pretends doesn't know anything about it takes their <laughs> companion there and then says oh look what happened to ha happen at our vacation spot oh this is horrible who will solve it that's charity how to solve it just to get the attention from some schlub who he's dragging around the universe in time right. which which is totally in character for doctor who totally totally i love that oh that's awesome oh that's good <laughs> I love I love I love wacky theories about like tell like televisions and mo in movie like if you I don't can... think that's a theory. Oh, it's it's <laughs> it's on Wikipedia. All right, yeah, it should be soon. <laughs> <laughs> It'll definitely be watching. Please put that on Wikipedia. Gene's writing it up right now on Wiki. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, so South Bend. Um, yeah, awesome. Very cool. That's a college town, I believe. Oh uh, yeah, Notre Dame. Yeah, small school. And a um, little, little unnoted, unnoted, not <laughs> nobody's ever heard of it. Uh, so I would guess if it's that, that sort of large, of, in, sort of cool of a town, you had probably early access to comic books. Oh, uh, so there was uh, on this, on the rough uh, post-industrial, and this is 70s post-industrial south side of South Bend. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a strip where the uh, abandoned factories were. And the strip mm. clubs were, and then someone next, like two 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 storefronts down from the one of the strip clubs, opened up a comic shop. It was an old hippie, who looked like I I I I BS you not, who looked like the original Marvel handbook, Angar the Screamer. Yeah, uh, guy. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a long ponytail, scraggly yeah. <laughs> beard, the vet, you know, the fake Indian fringe vest, vest and stuff like that. Uh, and it smelled like cat pee. It was the, the classic pre-modern oh. comic shop. <laughs> but I was, it was so exciting. But he had one. You had a comic shop. We had five and dimes back in the 70s. Uh, oh, where I oh lived. yeah. I'm before, that was uh, like probably around 1982 Damn. or three that oh, okay. shop opened up. Uh, yeah. I grew up in the 70s. And at that point, it was uh, Hook's Drugstore that I got my comic shops at. Gotcha. Yeah, we, it was definitely, it was, it was, it was just a five and dime uh you know, I was me. like, man, Gene is as old as we are, huh, Alex? <laughs> I believe so. I believe G, G, we, we share we share a similar uh, age age bracket. Uh, I was born a few weeks after the moon landing. Okay, I watched the moon landing. So, oh, I missed that. <laughs> even though even, I wouldn't have remembered it either way. It's I don't remember. It. I just there's there's pictures of me, at, you know, watching the moon landing, and I've grown up my whole grew up my whole life. They're saying, "Look, where's the picture? I want to see it." I'm like. Uh, no, I'm not showing you that picture. Are you kidding? <laughs> Never showing you that picture. Here, hold on a second. Just to be somewhat timely. Oh my gosh, I have a lot of tabs open. 
is what I get for uh, <laughs> trying to research a guest. Right. Um, While you did that, I was looking at my computer screen saying, how many tabs does he have? Oh, no, no. It's on his computer screen, right? There we go. Ready? Yeah. Ready Damn. We're looking for it. Huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's except he had a ponytail. He looked that's pretty much what he looked like. The wow. Out. I like it that he's kind of got underwear and pants going on at the same time. <laughs> well, he's a superhero. Is he? He's a yeah. villain. Well, super villain. So you had the five and dime, and then eventually you had a, a comic shop. It's like, were you like into comics, or did something get you into comics, or did somebody get you into origin story? Oh, honestly, by middle school, I was starting to fall a little bit out of comics. And then uh, my friend, Lowell Francis, who's now a figure inside of the, role play, uh, the international role-playing game community, mm -hmm. uh, at the time, he... I entered middle school with him and he'd just been to England where he has relatives, came back uh, after the end of summer and brought back a pile of um, 2000 AD slash Judge Dredd comics. Oh. Judge Dredd. Like a pile this thick in his backpack. Yep. He was just carrying around with them. And when we were bored in class, I would just ask if I could borrow another 2000 AD and read it. That's, a, that's amazing. Yeah, and then he would loan me also, uh, as he discovered them, he would then share his discoveries of things like um, Miracle Man by Alan Moore and wow. um, uh, Swap Thing. and all the uh, Actually, I think he's the one who introduced me to um, the Frank Miller Daredevil comics. Okay. Oh, in a cool. way that I recognize it as Frank Miller Daredevil comics. Yeah. I'd actually been a Daredevil fan of the 70s uh, during the Gene Colan run. Mm -hmm. And Colin. then they replaced him with a new artist who kind of drew in his style, but crappier. And I thought, oh, this guy will never get anywhere. This Frank Miller guy is awful. And I totally forgot about him. <laughs> <laughs> Until uh, my friend Lowell Francis then showed me what he developed into by about 1984, 1983. Right. And I was like, oh, wow, he's a genius. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I wasn't there like when, you know, Frank Miller first started, you know, like I, I had those, I got those issues pretty quick. But it was probably within the first year-ish, maybe right after the first year is when I started picking that book up. Because that was around the time that um, uh, Sienkiewicz was doing Moon Knight. So there was oh, kind yeah. of that, the, the, those guys were kind of really burning, you know, some coolness into, into the comics uh, on characters that nobody seemed to care about. Um, yeah, but that was, a yeah, yeah, that's, uh, but man, those, to be able to get your hands on those 2000, like to see those 2000 ADs, Oh yeah, and they were printed on such crappy paper. Oh really? Expensive. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's um, but that's got to be. I mean, what a what a, because like for me, comic books didn't have much of a sort of a like they didn't exist outside of whatever the American sort of realm of comic books were. So like to get an idea that there was something greater out there, mm -hmm. uh, which probably I'm going to guess opened your mind up to indie comics probably. You know, made it easier to accept that. Like for me, I remember my buddy handing me like, I don't know, it was like it was like Nexus number one or two. You know, and it was oh. black and white, and I was, yeah. I was just completely outraged at that there was no color. Like I couldn't. Get it, <laughs> you know? um, yeah. So yeah, because I mean, like, as Gary uh, is is a huge fan of Mage, you know, and, and so is Gene. Yeah. Yeah. So I read like, it on his wiki. Oh, there you go. Like another comic that Lowell Francis introduced me to. So, yeah. Yeah. That's and sad. it's like, you know, and I didn't get into that stuff until I got into college because that's when I would, I, I met people like Gary and, and Phil, who's not here today. But, 
those guys are like, oh no, you got to read this stuff too, you know. And then yeah. you read it and you go, oh my, <laughs> like it was so cool. Such a um, good comic. Yeah. It, so the best thing about being in Notre Dame wasn't so much that it made it culturally hip enough to have a comic shop, which I don't think Notre Dame really was what caused that so much. No. Uh, Notre Dame at the time, especially, did not like mixing with South Bend. Uh, they actually had they had like a no uh, a no man's zone surrounding the co uh, the college that they didn't develop to prevent co college students from wandering off campus. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, it's starting to get built up now, but at the time it was just like you had to walk like half a mile to get off campus. So you, people from South Bend didn't walk into Notre Dame. People from Notre Dame didn't walk onto off campus easily. Um, but Lowell was a son of a college professor. Oh. So that's what that's a big connection that got me into comics and having Notre Dame. Oh, okay. Well, that's okay. That's super interesting. And were you? I mean, were you? I mean. Yeah, I mean, your facility as an artist is 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 phenomenal. But like, were you that way early, or were you like, like, I mean, were you just like the kid who could draw, and like everybody was like, get Gene to draw it? <laughs> there was always there was almost always somebody who was about as good at me inside of uh, anywhere I, any school I've been in. So in middle school, there's another kid named David Clada who um, drew a little better than me. Mm -hmm. um and i was always competitive like i'm gonna get become better than david colada my yeah. older brother could always draw better than me uh in high school i didn't take the painting classes and stuff like that so i mean and i didn't i didn't get the right yeah i just i was just persistent i yeah. wasn't the most talented i was just the most persistent because everyone else found better things to do eventually well that's i mean but that's the thing like the per, like the persistence is a huge thing like i mean because yeah. you can have a great sort of learning curve where you can kind of pick something up and get get like 80 percent good quickly yeah. um it's that it's that pushing past that 80 percent in like and what's the drive to get there you know and if it's i mean if it's humiliating david colada then like you definitely gotta, <laughs> gotta do that um yeah and david colada is uh a we're both from south bend but we're both chicago chicagoans now yeah. and he's doing great things that have almost nothing to do with art. He's an advocate uh, for um, controlling the rather corrupt Illinois public utilities. Okay. So I get emails from all the time talking about like, here's what the, you know, the power company is doing right now and how they're trying to change legislation in, um, in Springfield, Illinois to screw us over and why this is, and here's why the legislation's evil. I mean, he's doing great stuff. It just has nothing to do with him drawing, me, me and him drawing orcs anymore. Right. Nice. Orcs, you said orcs? Nice. Yeah, we both would. We once did a competition where we both drew the coolest orc we could, and frankly, his was a little better. Oh no, son of a bitch! So you know, I mean, no, he's good, but it just he found better things to do, other you things know, to do. Maybe he could maybe he could portray the uh, the utilities people <laughs> orcs in his in his in his newsletter, and that way people can bond with that, you know, and they can get his chops back. Oh man. <laughs> I don't know, maybe just pass that one on to him, Gene. Maybe, okay. maybe, maybe we'll maybe we'll re envision the whole battle against corruption in one uh, one cartoon. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I, okay. I don't know how many kids are like watching a show because there's like advice I give to kids about going to the arts and stuff. Yeah. Like people under who haven't graduated from high school yet. Um, essentially, if your goal is you want to become rich and famous and you want to do it through art, that is just a horrible plan. Yeah. Yeah. I'll second especially that. The rich part. Yeah. I mean, you can make it if you work hard and you, you can possibly make a really good living or not a really good living, a good living in art. Um, 
but the, you do really don't if you want to make a good living through the arts you probably don't want to do it by being an artist you probably want to do it by owning a company that hires artists yes um so business skills are really useful yep and if you really want to get into that actual making of art you have to be willing to make less money and suffer for it and sometimes struggle to even get a job and still think at least i'm in the arts so it's worth it you have to love it so much you're willing to fail at it a lot of the time totally i've always i've always like sort of likened it to the the big the big thing that you can kind of i guess pull away from it is that <clears throat> it's being an artist or a creator of any type is regular typically not a scalable enterprise so you can't draw two comic book pages a day. You can't draw 10 comic book pages a day. Um, so the hard part, or I should say at the same time. So that's the hardest part about the whole thing is because you could be incredibly gifted and talented. Um, you know, like you could be Adam Hughes, but you can't do three Adam Hughes covers at a time. Like it just yeah. doesn't, it, it doesn't work that way. Um, There's a reason why people still speak in reverence of how uh, Jack Kirby was able to do a whole issue in three days or yeah. three or four pages a day because that doesn't happen. He's no. like he's the only one. I think Ron Lim was the last was the last comic book artist who like could crank pages out. You know, just like like oh yeah, Ron did six pages for us on this book, and you're like, what? You know, like yeah. in one day. You know, but it's like, but it was just like I I think I had this epiphany like. I don't know, like a month ago talking to somebody and I realized like my model for drawing comics when I was doing it was completely wrong. It was get up and draw a comic book page a day. That was the model because that was what you were told was what that's expected. We expect yeah. you to do a page a day. Okay, cool. What I didn't say, what I didn't say my model was, was get up and draw a comic book page by five o'clock in the afternoon. And, uh -huh. be and that was like, so you don't, you don't give yourself that framework to say, Oh yeah, like I need to be done and have a life, you know, versus, you know, have dinner and then go back and work for four more hours or whatever the, the you know the hours you know demand. Um, and you know, and the and the interesting thing about like being an artist and of any any type is that as you do it, the more you do it, the greater your facility to do it. So you get better and better, yeah. and that doesn't always mean you get faster and faster. Yeah. It just means that you're like. Oh, I can now see that next level in, and you start so you can focus in on more things or detail or whatever that is, and that just all that costs more time. It doesn't. It typically doesn't go like, oh, I know how to simplify this and do it faster. Yeah. Uh, I mean, because you're you're you, I mean, you're a detail guy. Like your work is, you know, it's pretty detailed, man. Um, it, like, yeah. it, was that always your like like model like for you? Like, were you always like, I gotta like get in um, there no but um it's partially i mean partially it's it's funny how the direction i went in was shaped by the stories that were coming out when i broke into comics in the 90s like around 1992 94 um and it tended to be uh this was be essentially before movies could do things like uh blow up a city and make it look convincing mm -hmm. um for the most part um so it was still, if you wanted to do an epic story like that, comics was the place to do it. There was, weren't a lot of other options. And so things like uh, Akira was like yeah. a big example. I saw that a little before I broke in. I read that a few years before I broke in. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And we can only do this in comics. Mm -hmm. 
and then I began getting the stories where like, uh, yeah, one of the first stories of grew was a uh, Green Lantern issue where essentially I blew up uh, Coast City slash San Diego. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so I found like an, a real uh, book on aerial photos of California, found a really good shot of San Diego. And then I did not trace, but I drew that photograph pretty much and then drew giant explosions in it, destroying San Diego. Mm -hmm. And it was only much, much later that I realized, oh, that's the hotel complex where they have San Diego Comic-Con. So yeah, yes. I up San Diego Comic-Con <laughs> comics is one of my first jobs in comics. Nice. How, pro how prophetic of you, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah I, it blew up in a different way, in a good well, way. I, oh, yeah, no, it, to it totally did. Yeah. I, remember, I remember going out there for the first time um, and I just remember everybody saying like, just be prepared. Like this is 94-ish, you know, maybe oh, like- man out there they're like just be be ready because like because nothing on the east coast was that large yet it just hadn't yeah. it hadn't happened and it was just it was mind-blowing um, uh, yeah i yeah. first got there in 1999 and i promise you every year since people will always be nostalgic about how san diego comic-con used to be five to ten years before right yeah. and if you go like in, if i went in 2019 and people were still like you know 10 years ago wasn't this crazy yeah right Totally. It was, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, there, there was some homespun charm to it. You know, you would like, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, you want to go there. You just somehow got Clydeine Nee's phone number. Oh, yeah. However, and you got her phone number and you called her and you said, hey, can I get a table in Artist Alley? And she's like, sure. And that was it. Like there was yeah. little to no, you know, song and dance in the, ma in the matter. So it was a different time. <laughs> yeah. If, if anyone who's younger than us wants to know what comic conventions were like around 1997 or 1995 for the most part um go to a local swap meet that's a good that's one pretty much it yeah and then lot, they add panels on comic books so yeah lots of dealers very few people in costumes uh, yeah might be in a school gymnasium or something or a community senator oh yeah. oh well like so yeah i mean like so that 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 one that the convention i mentioned in new york was like in a hotel you know conference room like it was super small there's like john Buscema and art adams and you know a bunch of people in there but it was super tiny um which i listen i like those kinds of shows i mean i they, yeah. we still have those like in you know smaller event like where i live in Asheville, we have like small conventions around um oh, some yeah. dude puts them on and they're they're easy to get to and they're real you know they're small and they're for families and yeah you know go pick up back issues yeah it's uh i'm I just uh, yesterday I was writing to uh, the uh, Minnesota Comic Book Association uh, saying, hey, uh, if you're interested, I'd love to be a guest again at your uh, at the spring of uh, the MSP Comic Con in Minnesota because it just has that feeling. It's just so much fun. And it's literally under the concrete bandstand at the Minnesota State Fair. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. No climate control. Yeah. This is usually fine for the time of year they hold it. But uh, when it isn't, it's hilarious yeah <laughs> and it's just yeah and yeah it's like you said if uh an artist contacts them like especially local artists contacts and says hey can i just get a table sometimes i'll just say if they have an extra table i'll be like sure yeah or, you know it's a small fee if it is i can't remember but it's it's really neighborly we used it so like so early on in like in the you know, hey pro tip to anybody trying to get into conventions like the smaller scale convention. <laughs> i remember this we so when we were when we were like we were in college and right after college. So I, it was right around the, right before I got into the business, 
I remember, so we would go around, we'd go to the shows, and this is the New York Comic Convention, which became New York Comic Con. And we would just sweet talk our way <laughs> into, into the thing for, without paying. So we just, we, we'd, we'd find like what we thought, like, hey, these girls are cute. We'd go start talk up the girls, and then they would give us the stamps to get in. Uh-huh. And then we'd walk around and we'd look for empty tables. And then we'd say, hey, can we sit here? And they're like, they would look at the schedule and be like, yeah, there's no one here. You can have the table. We're like, okay, great. And we'd hunker down and we would just like sit there for the weekend and have our little, our version of a comic convention. So, oh, man. so you can, you can, you know, you can make, you know, you can hustle your way into a comic show, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it was, it was, I don't know. Like I, it's a, it's a great vibe. I mean, comic conventions are a great vibe because there's nothing nicer than, seeing the light in the eyes of, of people who love comic books and yeah. even if they don't love what you do specifically the fact that they just love comics and they want to talk about the comics and they want to get in you know and you know and i always think like on my side of it all like when i went to conventions you know young and how excited i was to see yes. comic books or whatever and and how that sort of pave that path of whether it was to become a professional or to become a person who is just a lifelong fan of comics. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think they're great. Yeah. I should mention, I think I was uh, either a freshman in high school or maybe in middle school still when I went to my first comic convention and it would be many years till I went to another one. Um, it was on Notre Dame campus in a building that usually had an, that had an indoor basketball court. It was just like a cheapo 70s structure with a basketball court in it and they took down, you know, um, Oh, no, actually, no, I'm sorry. It was a Knights of Columbus Hall. There was a, diff- a gaming convention they had at Notre Dame. So it was a Knights of Columbus Hall, tiny place in South Bend. And they brought in comic book artists. So there's the first real professional comic book artist I'd ever met in my life. And I was all excited. And they brought him up onto the little stage area and had a question and answer session. And one of the kids uh, in the audience with me asked, are you guys rich? <laughs> And then both the artists began laughing really hard in a way that scared me, <laughs> which kept me from considering comics as a real profession for years. Oh my gosh, it's hilarious! You know, it, it's so funny because like the the you know, and I, I don't I don't know how many people like I mean you you you've mentioned that the sort of the, the the wealth factor of comic book creation, but what drove me so hard early on was I would figure out like. I don't know how I heard, but like that, you know, how much money John Byrne made drawing comic books back in the, you know, in the early to mid eighties. And I'm like, like, you can have a really good life, you know, drawing comic books. Like that was like, so he was like that bullseye target, um, you know, he, you know, but the modern Jack Kirby, he was, you know, yeah. cranking comics out. So yeah, it's, it's, it's just, it's just, so that was my, I've never got even remotely close to John Byrne. I lived in the same, my dad lived in the same town as him. That's as close I ever got to John Byrne. Oh yeah. I was a huge, huge fan of his work as a kid. Did you, were you, were you big into Byrne? Uh, Yeah, I was, was, uh, yeah, I was just kind of obsessed with him. Mm -hmm. Though I'm going to say because of the way I wanted to be, uh, draw realistically, and I loved his style. I didn't understand the difference between why reality didn't look like his style. Mm-hmm. And essentially a lot of art school for, for me was frankly unlearning any John Byrne influence I had or as much as I could. <laughs> there were certain things he does where it's like, oh, that's not how a, that's not how a real face works. It looks great when he does it, but yes. that's, that's not how I that's not something I can build on unless I'm going to become a John Byrne clone. Right. He he was like I mean, he like Kirby developed that shorthand 
of being able to solve the visual problems in in a way that they can do it, you know, with you know whatever minimum of strokes that they needed to to achieve that and yeah. sell it. Like we, because we, you know, listen, we looked at it. You look at burn work and you go, "This is great! Like it's fantastic. Give me more!" You know, and it was it was one of those things. And I can totally see what you're saying because I mean, if you if you you know if you put a piece of paper over it and try to like dis- dissect it it would probably be a an interesting dis- study yeah i mean it's it's this is something i actually did as a kid where i took a okay a, a kind of related example i took a charles schultz drawing and i traced it and then i tried to figure out where the bones were inside the heads of the different characters and how the anatomy worked on a charles schultz character and that's probably like in grade school so like okay. fifth graders when i did this and i realized oh uh, when Charles Schultz draws a face in profile, the eyes are at a certain level. And then when he draws from the front, they're at a higher level. They like the right. eye sockets move in the skull when he draws it from yes. different angles. Um, and if I'd done that with a John Byrne drawing and try to figure out how the anatomy worked, I would have realized a lot sooner the things I'd have to learn to get beyond John Byrne and not be a John Byrne clone. Yeah, right. It's just, yeah, it's weird. It's, it's, it's it's beautiful, but it's yeah. very weird how it work, his drawings work. No, it's true. And it's but you know, I mean, like John, like he really like he really fired off a whole generation. Like our generation got fired off, you know, with John Byrne X Men and you know and in Fantastic Four, like that that kind of it, you know, along with maybe you know Perez doing you know the the you know the Teen Titans and his run on the Avengers, like those kinds of books. Yeah. at that time like just fired this you know this what we'll call the the image generation you know like for better for yeah. worse well okay uh, i'm gonna mention uh i was also a huge sinkevich fan at the time okay uh, i saw his new mutant stuff and i just completely fell in love with it and i realized he wasn't drawing comic book characters he was drawing people yeah. which i had not really seen much inside of comic books at that point i mean he he draw things in an unromantic way like in a not idealized way but still right. make them look beautiful mm-hmm so he's still a foundation. The stuff I learned from him in high school is still a foundation I can work on from expand on today. Yeah. And the other thing is it's odd in the last 10 years. I mean, I've learned things about Jack Kirby where he's become kind of a foundation I can work on. Just like the way he abstracts anatomy. Yeah. Kind of works. Once I learned the realism, I was then able to go back to Jack Kirby and learn lessons from that in a way I couldn't when I was younger. That may, we we you know Gary and I talk about this actually we talk about it a lot about the idea that like it once you learn and you have that whatever that sort of structural element you're you're then able to you know deconstruct it a little bit make it simpler abstract from that yeah. point yeah. you know in a, in a sort of, in a sort of a rigorous methodology where it works like it doesn't you don't go like well that's cartooning it's like you, you can still do something that has sort of rid- structure and works yeah. but not be as you say like that idealized kind of version um yeah but um, you blew my head oh wait go ahead I, i'll go back to this it's a, it's an interesting okay. a few years ago there was a traveling alex ross museum exhibition going around where it had all these uh giant paintings by him yeah and he's in the last few years he's been ex- probably the last 10 years i guess uh he's been experimenting with something fascinating where he'll take essentially the weird, slightly non-human anatomy of uh, a lot of artists and to do a painting where he holds onto that anatomy. Oh. So like he, uh, let me see, uh, uh, Dave Cockrum. Yeah. Dave Cockrum has the kind of weird eye sockets where the eyebrows kind of do things that aren't really possible in humans. 
And he did some paintings based on, like, say, Storm, based on the Dave Cochran version with Dave Cochran anatomy, but it still works. And he does in this kind of almost photorealistic, fully painted, rendered, full color yeah. style. And it's beautiful. Uh, in an extreme case, he took um, uh, Rob, uh, Rob Liefeld uh, mm -hmm. X-Force illustration or style illustration, yeah. and he kept anatomy. And then he painted it photorealistically, which was beautiful and also kind of hilarious. Of right. just like, yeah, it was. Um, That's awesome. Well, I think yeah, like, not, like Rob's like Rob is like a cartoonist. You know what I mean? Like he's he's yeah. telling comic book stories as a cartoon, like cartoonist. He's not there like saying like figuring out like all the, all the, the dimensions and the, you know, putting everything in perspective and go, okay, here's, here's something that's going to live in a real world. Um, but you said something which totally like, I, I never even thought about this before, but like you might have, you might have, I think we might crack the code here, Gene, hold on. Ready? So John Byrne, Titan, you know, Bill Sienkiewicz, Titan. These guys are yeah. just like phenomenal Titans of, you know, the comic book industry. But they're both Neil Adams protégés. Oh yeah. But look how different in direction they both went. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, okay. John Byrne was never a good uh, Neil Adams imitator. Right. So in that sense, he was kind of freed up by the fact that he he couldn't even get close to it. Right. The problem that uh, Bills and Kevich ran it. Well, I mean, and I'm going to say also, if you look at like the really early uh, pre-Marvel work of John Byrne, it's it's got pretty much all the virtues of the later stuff. He pretty it's much true, developed yeah. this beautiful car, uh, yeah, this beautiful cartoony style early on. Um, uh, Bills and Kevich's problem for his first, you know, I don't know, five, ten years in the industry, was he was the best uh, Neil Adams imitator in the business. But he was never Neil Adams, so he was never going to, you know, make his mark until he finally figured out all the things he was going to do that were beyond that. And which, just... is, which is, I think, why Moon Knight is such an amazing series, because it's not only is it a great story, but it's just this this it, it's seeing this artist that we all know in time is like one of the greatest, you know, to to put anything down on paper and to see it evolve from what he was doing to what we all know as, you know, Bill Sienkiewicz and then, you know, then go on to the new mutants and then do Electra assassin. Like, like that sort of like those three chapters, they're just kind of tell the whole story. Um, yeah. Um, I'm going to say also that one of the exciting things about a lot of the artists uh, who came up during the seventies and sixties is also all the more New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. And they lived there at a time when New York was the advertising capital of the world. Yeah. Uh, and therefore they would hang out with like a the society of illustrators and they would, wouldn't just hang out with comic book people. If they wanted to, they could hang out, go beyond yeah. the comic books world. And that's what Bill Sienkiewicz did. So he would hang out with all these world famous illustrators and go to life drawing sessions with them or wow. hang out at some type of club meeting, have drinks with them and learn tricks from them. So like uh, another one of my art heroes outside comics is Mark English. Yeah. And I was talking about how, like, oh, you seem to have like a Mark English. I asked Bill, like, you seem to have a Mark English influence. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely do. Cause, you know, we hung out, blah, 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 these times and like that. And, we, you know, we'd meet all the time and we were in New York, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, he's a great guy. And he taught me a lot of tricks. It's like, so jealous. Oh, yeah. So effing jealous. It's, it, I mean, yeah, I mean, like, you know, you, you mentioned Gene Colan earlier. Um, he was, he was our teacher in, in our college. Oh, so, wow. like, you know, it's it's this weird kind of thing where you can appreciate it, 
but you can't really see like how fortunate you are, you know, at, at that, at the time. And now we look back, we're like, Oh my gosh, like, why were we not doing this or doing that with this guy? You know? Um, yeah. (laughs) It's, I mean, it's, it's crazy, but, and the, and you're right. The access to these talents is really quite, you know, fantastic in new york you know especially going back you know in the 70s yeah. or even in the 80s um you i mean because you got in the bit you you got in the business you know around the same time i did so the, i mean the, the business was still pretty small in the 90s i mean in the in the terms of the people and oh know. yeah and, but they were yeah they were really expanding out the use of uh fedex overnight packages at that point which yeah. created opportunities for guys like me so yeah, no, that, I mean, that's a, that's a huge, so how, like, how was it, like, how was your process of getting in? Cause I mean, uh, you know, for folks like me being in New York city, it was not that it wasn't easy to get in, but I could just go up to the offices and go sit there and talk with the people. So I don't have a sort of an equal sort of like, oh, well I lived in Chicago and I had to mail things in. And then once a year I was able to go see a single person at a convention and hope that they would remember me you know uh yeah my connect at that point was my mainly my local comic shop owners okay uh so yeah so there's two guys uh in ferndale uh who'd start up a comic shop and then they created kind of like a branch office in literally a used clothing store near my co- campus uh the art school i went to this uh college for creative studies so i went to this place where you could buy cool used leather jackets and there was a guy sitting next to a bookshelf or kind of like a magazine rack uh with a bunch of comics on it was like what's this? Mm. And it's like, oh yeah, I own a comics cafe. I'm the co-owner of comics cafe in Ferndale. And then he began to talk to me about the comic book industry. And that's how I learned everything. Oh my God. Okay. That's yeah, so, uh, so you, you had, you had a guru, you had, you had like, like on your adventure, on your, on your tale of adventure, like you came upon the sage guru who like gave you some information that like for your quest. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like a, a lot of comic shop owners uh, across uh, the parts of America that aren't rife with comic book artists all over the place. So yeah. essentially every word but New York. Um, yeah. He knew who all the local comic book artists were. Uh-huh. And he knew about all the comic events like comic conventions. So he was he and uh, Hassan uh, was uh, the guy at the at that uh, the magazine rack. And then I got to meet his uh, co-owner, Todd Johnson, later. Both of them have dropped out of comics since. Um, but yeah, they just, uh, hanging out at their comic shop and chatting with them, chatting with other, uh, customers, few from more comic book artists and stuff like that, uh, was my inch learning about how comics work. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. That's cool. And then, so you, so did you like, I mean, so you were doing sending in submissions, you know, to, uh, well, okay. One of the first conversations I had with Hassan was asking, wow, this, uh, but can you make a living in comics? Because I was still under the impression from middle school that you can't. And he's right. like, oh, no, people are actually getting rich drawing comics nowadays. And he began explaining the royalty system. Uh-huh. And it was like, oh, well, I don't need to make that much money as much as, you know, <laughs> Jim Lee or Rob Liefeld. But if I can make a fraction of that money, I can make a good living. And I don't have to do paintings for shopping malls anymore. This is before I graduated, but I'd already uh-huh. started my okay. career. So, okay. uh, yeah. And then uh, sending my samples to Marvel and as my backup plan to DC. Marvel sent a brutal rejection letter. Oof, awesome. Yeah. Form letter, form letter, but I deserved it. I should mention I wasn't quite ready yet. Right. But then I got lucky that the editor at DC who saw my stuff was Neil Posner, who wrote back and said, "You're not ready for DC, yep. but I'd like to see more stuff." Mm-hmm. 
and he mentored me through mail and over the phone until I was ready. Yeah, Neil was a great, super great guy, huge heart. Um, I I'd have been in the business I think for two years, um, and somehow I guess one of the editors made copies of whatever my pages were and handed them to him, and I I ended up getting a rejection letter from Neil even though I was working for DC at the time, which was hilarious. So oh, wow. I thought that was pretty funny. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I guess that's not, I guess he doesn't think I'm ready, but I, who knows? Maybe I wasn't ready. Um, yeah. Um, oh, I should also mention, um, I never got to meet Neil. Oh no, really? Yeah. He died like two or three years uh, after that. And I hadn't been to a New York convention by that time. So okay. Yeah. I, yeah, it was like, like, like a year after he died or something like that when I first got to New York. Yeah, he was super, super nice guy. Like, just really, just like, you know, as sweet as can be. And, uh, and like, I think as you said, the mentoring part, like, he really did care about, like, the, you know, I think he was just empathetic, you know, to the people trying to get into the business and, uh, which is important. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I remember seeing your stuff. I mean, I do remember seeing your stuff showing up like in mid 90s. And I remember, like, you know, you know, instantly hating you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but it was you know but like, I mean you see people like you know they're just people who pop up and you're like oh man what a what a great what a great look what a great thing what's going on here and you just kind of like and so then you automatically put those people on your radar to keep an eye on what they're what they're up to because um, what like I mean we were talking about like being John Byrne clones but like what were the like what were your biggest influences like kind of like putting together your early kind of template of who you were as an artist? Oh, um, I mean, uh, Matt Wagner was a big influence. Bill cool. uh, Cabbage, though, he he felt kind of out of reach as an influence sometimes, but I always kept him in mind. Mm-hmm. And he still kind of feels exactly the same distance out of reach. Essentially, the more I know, the more I understand how good he is. Yeah. Um, actually, um, and this is an interesting one. Uh, Two years before I, bro- I seriously tried to break into comics, I had some Barry Windsor Smith comics, Ooh. and I began trying to imitate his style but adapt him to my own style. Yeah, and then I finally got to a point where it's like, oh, I think I've got it. It's my style, but it's influenced. It has some of the virtues of what I like about Barry Windsor Smith, but it's mine. Yeah, and then I lost the drawings. I couldn't find them. Oh no! So if I hadn't lost those drawings, I would have turned into a very different artist. But so just- there's a Rosetta but, Stone artwork out there. No, oh, some of my friends did have copies of it. I found okay. out later, photo, photocopies. So I was able to see it, and I was able to kind of see the path I didn't take. And but so, it would have been well, a lot more fluid ink lines and stuff okay. like that, and kind of bolder Barry Windsor Smith crosshatching instead of kind of the um, the choppier, harsher crosshatching I I developed when I did break into comics. But, you know, it's funny. I mean, it's funny. The second you hmm. you said that, I can actually see what you were taught. Like when you mentioned the, the Barry, you know, the Barry Windsor Smith part, I'm like, I could totally see like where like there are elements of that kind of feel, like how he like creates sort of like renders a texture, like, you know, in black and white over something. So I can I can see that. Um but it's kind of, but I mean, but how heartbreaking it is, is it for you to like, I guess at the time to go like, I've lost the, the key. This is the, <laughs> this is my yeah. map. Um, that's hilarious. Yeah. There was, a, I mean, there was, it's interesting. I mean, do you, I was very big into like the forensically sort of dissecting artwork. Like if I would like, you know, see somebody's work and I'm like, okay, how, like, how are they constructing this? How are they getting to this, 
final result. And that was always a big learning process for me. Um, we, we, did you do that kind of network? A some of it was, okay. So I, at the time I broke into comics, mm -hmm. um, what we eventually would at the time call the image style was just yeah. literally called, called the style. Yeah. And um, Kevin Dooley was, uh, when he get, assigned me my first anchor said, oh, hey, you know, your new anchor can draw in the style. And it's like, oh. this is back when we used to have phone conversations better. And I said, the style? What is <laughs> the style? And he had explained it to me. And it's kind of like, and I really didn't, I, I liked some artists in the style, but I didn't want to become part of that style. Right. Yeah. Uh, the Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee, uh, Todd McFarlane style of yeah. thinking and cross-hatching and stuff like that. But I did figure I wanted to kind of grab, do that three-dimensional punch, that kind of, you know, the feeling of fully formed roundedness that mm. came from doing cross-hatching. So my style was essentially a reaction to wanting to accomplish that, but not do it in the way that those guys were doing it. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you look at the next few years of it, uh, my style, my cross-hatching style kind of went in the opposite direction of very Windsor Smith. And also those guys and just became super finer and finer and finer, but also in kind of a, I actually began emulating the, the, what, uh, the hatching, cross hatching and what I call negative hatching or cross hatching with white instead of with black. Yeah. Uh, style of uh, American currency. That's cool. Yeah. And I would take uh, bills uh, or other things, kind of lithograph type things. And mm -hmm. take them to a photocopy shop and just blow them up 200%, then take that drawing and blow it up 200% until I had like a dollar bill this big and I could see how the, the technique was. The, engra the engraving technique. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And just kind of, yeah, doing the Franklin Booth type of thing, mm -hmm. um, but in comics. But it, it doesn't, Franklin Booth in general and also that type of dollar bill um, rendering style does not work well in general with comic book coloring and really, really works badly with nineties uh, style comics coloring. So I had to abandon that. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, cause I mean, like I said, I mean, I've, I definitely noticed that facility in your, your work, that sense of sort of detailed rendering, that ability to kind of dimensionalize your work. And, and you still have that today, even though like you're, your approach and your sort of your 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 actual artwork style is different when it comes to how you render your work but yeah there's a yeah. solidity like you yeah. I, I mean like i would say that like a defining characteristic characteristic would be your ability to solidify an object whether the object is a person or a box you know yeah um i mean the way i define it is that uh the vision in my head is sculptural hmm. it it feels it's has the main it's there's I'm going to get all weirdy scientific now, but uh, there's different visual centers in the head. And the main one I depend on for drawing is the one that's sees in black and white in gray, in grayscale and looks for sculptural forms. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that's always the vision in my head. And then I want to add color to that afterward. Um, so the early cross hatching work was an attempt to do that. Uh, then when I started doing the Starman marker style and yeah. then later on Photoshop style, and then my latest experiments, um, it's always been an attempt to get that kind of three, very three dimensional, heavy light shadow um, feeling mm -hmm. uh, across on the page. Yeah. But yeah. The vision's always kind of the same, but the technique changes over time. I'm going to, let me see. I'm gonna look for a page that I can actually show you yeah. right now without any trouble. Well, I mean, oh, like, okay. 
yeah, I'll put the, I'll put this Batman thing back up. But like, I mean, like, there's just this sense of like, like physical physical world. And like I said, think you said like that grayscale. Like, I mean, you are. I can see that Matt Wagner feel in there, though the painted feel that Matt Wagner does. Oh, yeah, I I still have this huge uh, love of kind of a speckly a random speckle in my artwork. Yeah, which is literally part of the thing I loved about Matt Wagner's work. Uh, yeah. Here's an illustration I did right. for uh, Baltimore Comic Con. Oh, that's cool. Sweet. Though they couldn't use it because they were afraid of using the likeness of Michael K. Thomas, the yeah. actor of Omar from The Wire. R.I.P. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, I love the blurriness in the background, giving it that shallow depth of field. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like... Uh, the other thing is, another important thing on my uh, how I think of visuals is it's important to draw the eye where you want the attention to be. Mm-hmm. And sure. I like blurriness not so much because it creates the depth of field, because it draws the eye to the thing that's in focus yeah well that, that, that i mean that's that's a one of the great things about you know your depth of field i mean you have that yeah. and if you are bringing that into your actual two-dimensional artwork that's a real great tool oh yeah um yeah i mean whether i'm doing what whatever level of you know technique i'm doing stuff like that a lot of it is i'm i'm not i know enough artists genius artists where i can say I know somebody who's better at me than almost anything at almost any specific skill you can name. And some artists who are better at almost everything mm-hmm. than me. Um, like uh, you mentioned it earlier, Adam Hughes and also Alex Rosser. When they want to, they can pretty much do anything I do, but better. Well, <laughs> listen, those guys, those guys, are <laughs> yeah. sons of bitches I, is what they are. Yeah, they yeah. are. I've Those seen bastards. Alex Ross do quick caricatures in a cartoony style. And it's kind of like, you're a realist. You're not supposed to be that good at that. You right, jerk. right. Stop that. Stop it. <laughs> I'll bet you're better than me, and I specialize in quick caricatures. Um, and he's probably really good on a skateboard too. That bastard. He's yeah. also a great graphic designer. So it's anyway, I mean, um, his. I mean, I the one of my. Okay, first... wait, look, I just I just finish off with that. Oh, the yeah. thing I'm better at than almost anybody else in the world hmm. is drawing a detailed scene and drawing the eye to the part of the picture I want you to. Right. So it doesn't slow down the storytelling too much. Yeah, and that's I mean that that take I mean your your sense of ability to control you know the, that the the setting, the direction with the composition and how you are you know sort of executing that, it really it I mean it is I mean it is your secret weapon you know um, although you've just told everybody this so now there's some twenty year old out there who is who is going to treat you like your seventh <laughs> grade orc drawing buddy and and come after you, um, so uh, yeah no I mean my first like. I was back in the in the day when the style was the thing. Um, I was hanging out with Dave Johnson uh, at his at his place, and he he and Alex Ross are <clears throat> close buddies. And Alex had made a uh, an action figure of Dave, like in, <laughs> you know, in a uh, you know in a blister pack, made all the art card artwork and everything, and shipped it. And like, and Dave had just opened it up like that day when he got it it was just it was unbelievable and like this is the guy who we're all going like man like he can do anything so he's uh he's he's terribly talented speaking of adam have you and i'm sure someone has said this to you but have you guys collaborated so you can do an aha piece um an editor tried to do this for uh i think it was like a 1998 era justice league uh pinup book okay or just book of like big illustrations yeah so uh they booked both me and Adams to do uh, pinups, and they're going to print them side by side. And the one thing they insisted on more than anything was um, 
on Adam's side, he had to sign it here. Yep. And on my side, I had to sign it here. So it said, aha, going across. That's close. That's that. Yeah. yeah. But Adam had to drop out of the project. Oh. So you can still find my illustration with the signature in the corner set up so Adam could start off the joke and I could finish it. Well, then you should have gotten two pieces in there so it could have been ha ha. So you're going to really. <laughs> that's that's that should have been a, a rider. Actually, there is now a young comic book artist named Robin Ha. Okay. Uh, she, uh, as far as we know, she's completely unrelated to me, though she's also Korean American. Okay. Um, she, uh, author of uh, Cook Korean and also of um, Almost American Girl, a memoir comic. Oh, cool. And now I really want to do, yeah, side by side. You've got to do a ha ha thing. There's got to yeah. be a ha ha out there eventually. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you came, you come fully baked in with it, with a, with a, with a thing to become with your name. So you're lucky. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, like you, we were talking about like going from, you know, being a penciler to being a fully sort of rendered artist and, you know, in, you know, hand done techniques and obviously in Photoshop, like, how do you, like, I mean, how has the, the transition been for you? I mean, like, are you like a lover of Photoshop or are you like, it's a, an ends to a means? I like Photoshop for uh, painting, but for some reason I've never been able to draw in it. Okay. Uh, it's it's not well, it's not even so much Photoshop. It's that uh, Cintiqs. Mm -hmm. I just uh, on Cintiqs and Wacom tablets, I've never been good at drawing in them. So, um, like you can see here, I've been the thing I hold up, held yeah. up that I was drawing on is an iPad Pro. Okay. Uh, it's got um, a jet pen matte protector from Japan on it to give it kind of like a paper like texture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and for some reason, maybe it's the thinnest of the, it's how close the LED screen is to the glass it's yeah. underneath or something, or the reaction time, but it just feels more natural. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I'm very happy drawing in that. Okay, and are you drawing in in, in Procreate or uh, Photoshop? What's your preferred? Uh, Procreate. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it, the, the the level of tools out there, you know, the, it's it's amazing to see how these digital tools are advancing at such a, yeah. such a rate. Um, like I've been using Clip Studio. I picked that up maybe like, I don't know, a year ago. I don't know. I can't remember anymore. I mean, we lost a whole year of our lives. So we don't, I, I can't remember whether it was last year or the year before. <laughs> I don't remember. But that like, as a tool goes, like for drawing, I find that to be a much more preferable uh, tool for drawing than Photoshop was uh, for doing that and for inking. Yeah. But Photoshop has so many sort of, tools that work for coloring that I really still prefer that as my uh, go-to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. But like, but I do, I hear so many good things about Procreate um, that like, it seems to me if I was, you know, 20 trying to get in this business, I would just have the iPad pro and just work that way. It just seems. Yeah. Oh, I should mention also um, in physical media, I'm real. I really like depending on going having thick, thin control with a brush tip. Yeah. So whether it's a Windsor Newton Series Seven or it's a, I really love the Copic Mark brush tips. Oh, yeah. Markers. Um, but I've never found a digital tool where I can do that. And does... part of the reason I can draw in Procreate is because I'm not trying to control thick, thin anymore. Right. And I'm using a pencil tip, and I just fade mm. out the line instead of thick thinning it. And a few. Like two weeks ago, I was trying to actually do a thick, thin line drawing because it yep. had to be for a t-shirt. Um, 
and I realized, oh man, I hate this. I hate drawing, trying to do this on a on a on an iPad Pro. Uh, I can show you the illustration here, and it just killed me trying to get it done, because trying to get this is for our science fiction convention. Okay. I drew their mascot. Yep. Wow. And cool. trying to get this thick, thin line like that turned out to be just brutally difficult. It was taking like three times as long doing it on the iPad Pro for me than it would on paper. I, and it's it's you know it's interesting. I would love I would love you know that's this is an interesting subject. I would love to see different talk to different people who I consider really kind of exceptional sort of inkers when it comes to a brush. You know, I like I don't know if Brian Stelfreeze is doing work on a on a tablet. Like I don't know if he's doing a digital environment. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's he's so good with physical media. I mean, like he, a few years ago, he posted some life drawings he did in mm -hmm. watercolor paints. <laughs> done in class on paper and I was kind of like man this, he's he's like one of those you know those samurais from one of those movies they're just like I live for my art and my art is a sword but in his case it happens to be paint and ink and it's just like he is such a focused zen artist guy just always trying to master his skill it's like he's so good no he's he's so he's so good and I mean I I just I don't know because like I know that like um golden Michael Golden like he He's been using digital stuff for a long time. So he's been using, you know, the Cintiqs for, for years, but like it was two oh, years ago. That. Yeah. So two years ago we were talking, he's like, I'm going to get rid of Like I'm getting rid of my table setup. And it was like, I'm just going to go onto an iPad. And I was like, oh, okay. So like he was all excited about this whole thing. And, um, and then like six months later, I'm like, so how's that going? And he's like, <clears throat> he's like, I did like four or five covers. And he's like, he's like, no, nah, I don't like, I'm not doing it anymore because he was having a hard time um you get getting the files to sort of be uh, pressed ready for the way that he wanted them to be press ready yeah so because they don't have the same sort of control that like photoshop does like you can really do a lot of pre-press work on photoshop so but he was still getting like the line work still looked like golden line work you know but once again, he's at a different level than the rest of us mortals. So we just kind of have to go, okay, so you're doing your thing and we're all his, you know, beating sticks against rocks here. Yeah. I, I cannot do, I cannot, I cannot draw in the classic Gene Haas style on iPad Pro. I can still kind of copy it on paper. It yeah. helps if I draw bigger now because my eyes aren't the same, but yeah. Oh, dude, what's up with that? That's not fair. Like this, uh, that's not fair. Uh, when I was in my, uh, probably about 35, 36 years old, I was talking to my optometrist saying, you think it's too late for, I mean, I feel like uh, LASIK technology's got good enough. Maybe we should do it in a few years. I was holding off until it got good enough. And he's like, well, if you want to do it, you better do it now because in four years, your your uh, lenses are going to harden your eyes and it's not going to be, gonna get, you're going to still have to wear glasses. And it's like, oh, no. well, that's going to happen. It's like, yeah, yeah, this happens to everybody. He's like, I had no idea. And then it turned out to be true. And like a few years later, my got into the bifocal age. I don't have my bifocals with me right now, but yeah. I'm wearing my drawing glasses. But it was like, oh man, yeah, I can I can no longer just lean in close to the paper to see oh, the no. detail. And that killed me. That's that was the basis of my style early on. I remember I it, yeah, I mean like having that sort of ability to get like, you know, that micro lens focus. two inches away from the piece of paper. I was, it, it, you know, because like, I mean, I like, you know, you're, you're yeah. sitting there at your drawing table drawing and next thing, like you, you sort of like stand back and you can look yourself and like you have moved your head right up against the stupid, 
you know, piece of paper and you're like, I'm like, sit back. Relax. It's like yeah. zooming in and zooming out in Photoshop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but in real life, the thing is, I mean, if I do it now, I mean, if I did it then, I could just see in super detail. Now, if I lean in closer than the folks, my glasses and my eyes, it just gets blurry. I'm just looking right. at super close and that's blurry. Exactly. So it doesn't do any good. Um, so it does strike me at some point, maybe I'll go back to physical media if I get some of those uh, jewelers magnifying yeah, glasses and just yeah. with three different magnification levels I can put on it. Yeah, you, yeah. You become, yeah, you become like a, a character from a French, you know, like film <laughs> at that point. That's fine. Yeah, uh, I can become the uh, the eye engineer from uh, the original Blade Runner movie. Exactly. That dude. That guy was great. Uh, <laughs> I felt so sorry for him. And they were, they were so, like, do you think he lived? Do you think they killed him? Oh, yeah. Okay. Damn. Yeah, once they took off his jacket, he was just doomed. So, yeah. Sure. That, that was no good. Yeah, because they, they started pulling the hoses off his jacket, and that was he was done for. That's a sad story. We should have that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a sad story. <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, I, so, you also, like, you've mentioned it, and I'm going like, to detail. I'm going to veer here because I'm curious. You, you've, you've dropped these little little things out there, and I will – throw it out there and you know i am a long time gamer and when i say gamer i don't mean using my thumbs uh, i'm talking about rolling dice character sheets i'm talking larping when larping even wasn't considered uncool it was unknown and um so i'm an inveterate I haven't gaming much anymore, but I'm a longtime gamer. So many of my friends are in the gaming industry. It's silly, silly, silly. Um, were you a gamer or are you a gamer? Like, what's the... Uh, yeah, I was a gamer through... Even after I dropped out of comics for a little bit in middle school, I stayed uh, as a big D&D fan. Then, uh, actually, one of the things that drew me back into comics was also uh, the publication of Villains and Vigilantes. Oh, yeah. A super role-playing game. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then... Uh, then for a few decades i fell out of role-playing games after i got into comics but then i got back into it uh a few years ago and uh after i get done with my current deadlines i'm going to play a big DD game with my friends and uh murder the assassin who killed my aunt oh wow oh. <laughs> vengeance. vengeance will be yours gene <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i have uh, rogue Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I have like you know my my gaming buddies, you know from from co- you know from college are always like we got to get back, we got to get the band back together, kind of thing. So maybe maybe I'll do like a, a long weekend kind of thing. Oh, uh, so wait a minute, I should mention this also. Um, so part of the problem with doing a role playing game is getting somebody to volunteer to be uh, the referee or the game master or the dungeon master who's going to prep the adventure, make the maps, create the stat blocks for all the non-player characters, the GM mm-hmm. characters. Um, and the current uh, new thing inside of ro- uh, tabletop role-playing game design is no prep games. Oh, really? And Yeah. And essentially the experience is a bit like being in a TV writer's room where everyone sits around the table and contributes to the situation. But you each have a character, and each character has kind of like listed, say, um, drives, flaws, things yeah. that energize them, things that suck energy from them, and stuff like that. So, like, uh, uh, it's like you have a character who's like bursting with secrets, and therefore, if you want to recharge your character so they can do cool things later, uh, you have to make an embarrassing confession to another one of the players. 
and it's yeah which is a bit like a tv thing like oh yeah this character's theme is that he has to come up with a we you know do whatever mm -hmm. um and but the part of the design of these games is nobody preps anything you have like some prompts in the game and then everyone builds what the adventure is while you're sitting around the table that's super interesting to me that i mean it's sort of similar to larping in the terms that like there is nobody walking around with you saying you see this or you do that or this is what happens like you kind of you you're with people and everybody's kind of interacting but then they send out npcs that you do interact with but i love the i love the idea that that's a, that's fascinating we have to look look that up that's pretty cool um, go right. to uh okay so i mentioned my friend lowell francis earlier who yes. brought me back to comic books when i was in middle school uh, he is currently one of the top administrators at the gauntlet okay so look up gauntlet rpg it's an online community yep that uh often does a lot of online gaming with uh, a lot of low prep, no prep, and very super modern uh, role-playing game design games. And you can just play games with them online. That's cool. Like, a, like this Zoom interview. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, yeah. oh, wait, really, okay, let me give you an example of one of the games. All right, fire. I haven't played it, but this sounds so fascinating to me. Um, it's, I can't remember the exact name. It's something like Emily is Missing or something. So everyone uh, plays the game uh inside of a text message group on your actual phones sure on your actual mobile phones and essentially the game the game starts with a prompt that everyone gets a role of like emily's best friend a boy who has a crush on emily uh emily's older older brother sister whatever and you're all just texting back and forth trying to figure out what happened to emily right and as you come up with discoveries there's like each character has certain like secrets blah 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 you spend like an hour or two just texting back and forth what you discovered based on who your character is and what your secret prompts are and stuff like that. Yeah. Developing the situation. There's no GM. You're just, again, texting on the phone and it just gets very tense apparently and it's super dramatic. Oh, that's cool. It's like it's like those how to you know what a murder mystery party party thing. But now it's like you're only in the text you know text world, which that's kind of cool. And, and, you know, I mean, and the limitations of texting, which was where you can't really read tone so well. Yeah. So it probably helps with what you were saying, that whole tension factor It probably gets ratcheted up. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, because of the prompts in the game, I don't know what I haven't played the game, yeah. but everybody has secrets. For sure. Right. So you can't totally trust anybody else in the game. Right. That's pretty cool. I, I listen. I love, I love mysteries. Like, I mean, like I was blown away with knives out. Like, like I, I love this kind of, you know, that kind of world of, you know, whodunits and all that kind of junk. So that, oh, that's cool. I, I'm, I'm going to look it up. I'm going to, I'm going to find out these no prep games and see, and, and then find another way to waste my time. Um, <laughs> Again, it will be less time wasted than a, say a Dungeons and Dragons game. You know, because... you know, you know, it's a great way to waste your time, Gene, is to run a uh, is to run a Kickstarter. <laughs> Good lead-in. We launched yep. our Kickstarter on Thanksgiving, and it goes until Dece December twenty fifth. So we have like Thanksgiving to you know Christmas, and it's it, yeah, it is over. It's an overload to say the least. And like our and we're not even going for broke. We're just like, hey, we just want to get fifteen hundred bucks to get this comic book out to people because we do. We made a real yeah. fun comic with a bunch of people. I'm, I'm going to tell you since uh, you know this, but I'm going to for everyone else out there who doesn't know about running a Kickstarter. Yeah, the rule Please. of thumb for a Kickstarter, and this may have gotten even worse since I last since I did my one Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. You spend at least a month before the Kickstarter prepping for it. Yeah, you spend the whole month of the Kickstarter running it, 
We're doing and that, then you yeah. spend at least one month, probably more, fulfilling the Kickstarter yeah. afterwards. And if yeah. you have like say a seventy thousand dollar, you know, um, yeah. Kickstarter that brings in that much funds, you know, I had kept on getting this reaction of like when I did my Kickstarter, oh, you made a lot of money in that Kickstarter in just a month, and it's kind of like it's more than a month. Yeah, and eighty to ninety percent <laughs> of the money is just going to fulfill the Kickstarter. Right. There's almost no profit. Except no, for, not, none in your pocket. Just barely paying me for the time I'm putting into it. Like you, you know, you know what it is. You can just liken it to uh, prosciutto. You know, yeah. you're just shaving off a little bit of of something that you can have, and the rest of it, you know, goes back to the machine. So yeah, um, very much like being an artist. If you want, to, if you're being a Kickstarter person is something you don't do because you want to get rich. You're doing it because you want to see something totally. become real. I so, love this project. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, this, so this project, so this project came, came the, the work, it's the United Forces crash over. So with guests early on, Gary um, started drawing his characters into their comic book worlds. Oh, so, yeah. you know, so like, so for Nick Cagnetti, who's in the book, he has a comic book called Pink Lemonade. And so like, he would create what we were calling mashups, where he would just yeah. mosh up his characters into these other worlds. And they were hilarious. And they're fun. And then Gary is like, I, you know, I don't think you even mentioned it to me. You're like, one I day didn't. you're like, Hey, I asked these people if they want to do a comic. I'm like, Oh, that's yeah. a great idea. Um, and so eventually we kind of got around to like talking about it and doing it. And, you know, next thing you know, we have like, you know, a story, which is five different chapters with all, you know, with, you know, with Nick Agnetti, with Bradley Little John for Wilt Wilt Worthy, um, Blake Seals with Evil Monkey Man and Amanda, Amanda Semler with uh, Yeti or Not. And it's like, so I wrote this storyline, which takes Gary's characters through an adventure of these worlds and then let each creator do this sort of six page chunk of whatever happens. You know, I'm like, here's oh, wow. what happens at the beginning. Here's what happens at the end. You figure out what happens in the middle. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah, so it's it was, a champion. That's great. Yeah, exactly. Yes. It's, a complete, it's a complete jam piece and it was a lot of fun. And so, you know, it's up and, you know, it's doing, it's doing well. It could always do well, er, better. Yes, better. That's well, better. better. I think it's yeah. doing great. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a hoot and, uh, but it's, you know, it is a lot of work, you know, we're constantly- it, it is the most epic jam piece I've ever heard of. So yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's nuts. And I have a, I have a client of mine who makes, well, it's a gaming company, uh, of, Dwarven Forge, they make all these. Oh, yeah. yeah, so like my 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 friend is the creative director for that. So I do I do um I write I write copy for them for their stuff and I also do some design work. Did you see the movie The Dwarvenaut? Okay, you should check it out. Look up the, the Dwarvenaut. It's on Netflix, I think, still, but mm-hmm. you can find it online. And um I'm gonna type it and keep talking. Yeah, yeah. So I, I designed the, the title copy and the poster for poster and DVD cover for that thing. And uh, but anyway, they do their all their annual business on uh, Kickstarter. And so, I mean, listen, we're this is we're not asking for big chunks here. Like, but these guys are doing you know six million dollars at a pop for their their things, and the pressure gene is unbelievable for those people. Yeah. You know, because it's their nut. This is it. You know. Um, but they do a great job. So I, uh, I hope we have one, one thousandth of their success. Dwarvenaut. The Dwarvenaut. Yep. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's hilarious. 
That's the one there. And yeah, check it out. It's really good. Yeah, that's my logo type right there. That's me. I did that. Um, so yeah, but speaking of, you said that you're going to do a game, but you're but something is in the way between you and this game, and you've got a project coming out in the near oh. future. Yeah, I think uh so uh, Phil Jimenez and writer Kelsey Udaconic just came out with um I believe it's just out. I haven't been to the comic shop like this before. Oh, it is today. Okay. Uh Wonder Woman Historia colon the Amazons volume one. Correct. Which is one of the I'm literally one of the top best comic graphic novels it's, ever from the American industry. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. Phil Phil knocked out like we had him on the show what two two three weeks ago just knocked it out of the park yeah uh it's literally as if uh stanley kubrick and uh alexander mcqueen got together and decided to design Ooh. a comic book together yeah, with yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's beautiful i love that that that's perfect yeah it's it's obsessive and beautiful and i've never seen anyone try to accomplish the things he's the ambition he had and the time he took to do it he took forever to draw these pages it's un it's, it's it's uh, and he did a he did it all on the i his iPad Pro I think oh I don't know yeah yeah he did it all on the iPad Pro like it's 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 ridiculous I mean yeah. it is so bloody showy um, I I don't know what to say I I have no nice things to say about it because it's so uh -huh. good. <laughs> um, no it, it's it, I mean Phil yeah. Phil put everything into that um, yeah and I got to be the guy who follows him onto the stage with volume two nice right right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you 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 are your uh, journey after Van Halen opened up for Journey on the on the <laughs> seventy eight tour. So good luck. Um, yeah. So how so how like Kelly Sue is coming on in January, I think. So she's coming on to talk about the about the project. I guess we'll try to get everybody on. You know, um, and um, uh, I'm going to say the story is just as ambitious as the art. Uh, sure. She has a deep love for all of Wonder Woman's history and she finds a way to pretty much integrate all of it into a story that changes the meaning of everything every every version of you read before God. you get to read the history again but there's twists and gods in the background taking actions that change the meaning of every action it's yeah. it's heart it is so heartbreaking it is such a beautiful heartbreaking story it's it's just beautiful it's, so it, every version of Wonder Woman that's come before except Zeus being the father. Okay. That it the movie stuff, yeah, that doesn't count. The comic book right. stuff all counts. Okay. So so your volume two, so but you're not the Amazons. So what are what is your what is oh, your it's still the Amazons, but it's volume two of that. Okay. Okay. So it's the Amazons volume two. Okay, cool. Yeah, and then there's gonna be Amazon's volume three. And actually, I think Kelly has talked about this publicly. If she ever gets a chance, she would love to do another trio of stories and then another trio of stories. So there's a total of nine volumes. Wow. Well, I mean, I'm, and I keep saying it and I'm, I'm, listen, I'm a Marvel fanboy, but I keep saying it is that DC, what, what they're doing with black label is really changing the game. They're doing what I think we'd always hoped Marvel would have done with Epic in the terms of taking their properties and doing something special with their properties like while they made great stuff with epic yeah. don't get me wrong it wasn't marvel comics well i mean in a way kind of like um is it uh the marvel knight stuff in the early 2000s sure 
Yeah, I, it's not quite the same, but it's kind of a similar thing of rethinking how the what you in the industry is and stuff like that, mm -hmm. and how what you can do in it. Uh, that because essentially the Marvel Knight stuff became the template for the Marvel comics we know today, which it also did. became the template very quickly for all the movies that came out. Yeah, it, 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 I mean, it became, well, I guess, you know, it was, I mean, it was very smart on Joe and Jimmy's, you know, they're like, we want to tell these stories, but we're not going to get the editorial support to do it. Yeah. So, hey, can we do it in our own little fake playground? And they're like, whatever, have fun, kids, you know, and yeah. like, turns out the kids were right. <laughs> um, so when did you, like, when did you get on board with this? And like, how, like, I mean, how long of a process? Because we had, um um cliff on talking about his book the the catwoman his catwoman series and how much work he's put into that so that's taken him like years now yeah so. i think it probably was it 2018 i was at heroes con um and kelly sue wasn't there but her husband was who mm -hmm. uh matt fraction said hey you know who wants to work with you and it's like you <laughs> well, yeah but actually the important one is kelly sue DeConnick. <laughs> so I still haven't actually had a conversation with her in person, but he then began pitching me in, in her stead of like some cool stuff she wanted to do. And that's how I got on board. Oh my God. That's hilarious. That's so great that have, have, have the husband going around being the pitch man. Love it. Yeah. Smart move on her half. Uh, uh, she trained a good, yeah, she trained a good assistant. Yeah. Well, Hey, lift, and if you can have an assistant good it, as, as good with the words as he is, um, yeah. that's not bad. That's, that's fantastic. So you, so you were sort of, you know, primed you know like he he incepted you uh in 2000, 2018 and then like so how did the whole thing come together for you like was this a sort of a call on the phone with her and then a call on the phone with editorial and oh uh, it was mainly with her and then once she uh yeah it was and mainly through email yeah uh and once she convinced me like the scale of the project oh that actually didn't take long at all i mean she just kind of described what she was doing what phil were doing and it's kind of like oh yeah and i am also completely intimidated by what phil's doing and yeah. then I got to see what she was planning. I was kind of like, man, this is all so insanely ambitious. And if you've read volume one, you can see part of the reason wasn't that I just wasn't just that I heard their vision. It's that I got to saw, see it become reality. Yeah. And he already had like half the pages mostly done by the time I saw it. And I was kind of like, I've never seen a comic book like this. And in a way, this doesn't even feel American. It's just so... <laughs> It doesn't uh, you're right. a lot epic, but beyond kind of with a, a bigger, more heartbreaking story than you usually see, more thought out story, a more heartfelt American story than you usually get from a European comic book. Right, right. Yeah, it's it. it I mean, it, it, you know, it has the same trappings. There's a binding, there's pages, there's, yeah. you know, artwork on there, but it is very different feeling, you know, than than what we're seeing in, you know, uh, in general. Uh, are you now? So, I mean, Phil only did the black and white artwork with a little bit of color work in there on things that like were sort of he was figuring he would never be able to actually like say do this yeah. um are you doing the coloring on this as well uh no but um if you saw this uh i'm gonna hold it up again because it's in this kind of the same style yeah uh if you saw the uh omar uh the terrible illustration i did it's <laughs> kind of in that style yeah uh let me see so you're, are you delivering a gray tone? Is that what you're kind of doing? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a iPad Pro and I'm doing a gray tone. Here's a different illustration I did for uh, something. Okay. Yeah. Mm. This is not a historic illustration, but it's in a style a lot like this. Okay, very cool, man. But so, I cannot show you the artwork yet at all. I know, I know. <laughs> 
I, 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 Gary's going to hold it against you, but I won't. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's super, I, I mean that the word ambitious is, is really what I would say describes a whole black label approach. And I yeah. think what Kelly Sue has done here is another level of ambition um, in, in her, in the work. You know, I think Cliff is being ambitious in a way that, He's thumbing his nose at every other creator by saying, I'm doing everything. So take that, you know, like that's because that, nobody gets to do that. You know, no one gets to do the whole thing. And then, you know, you know, what is a human? Tar have you read Human Target yet? Oh, no, I haven't. Oh, my God, dude. It just came, it just came out what, like last month or this month or whatever. Pick up, get issue one of Human Target, man, like Tom King. And um, oh, why am I blanking on his name? Oh, come on. He's the guy who did the really great Moon Knight run. Oh, it doesn't matter. It matters because he matters, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> I think I may have it here. I don't know. Anyway, it's so good. There we go. There we go. Greg Smallwood. There you go. Oh. Yeah. Okay. It's super, it's super good. You know, if if you're a fan of like 50s and 60s illustration, um, Greg is just channeling all that kind of beauty in the work. So um so you so you were you were you were brought on board in 2018 and like how many pages is the is the volume uh 64 and i still have six pages to go oh my god yeah so getting pretty close and then i yeah my schedule's got a mess because i've taken some things i scheduled for after i got done for yeah. december when i get done with historia have crashed into me not finishing historia on the time yeah schedule i expected so oh my gosh so and then and then, so are, who are you getting? Do you know who's coloring the? Is it going to be a single color source? Uh, we're bringing a colorist on board, but he needs to do one test page before I can officially announce it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, I was. I was just curious, as like, because like for you know for Phil, it ended up being a bunch of different colorists, you know, doing different different pieces. Um, and then, is it Clay? Is Clayton doing the color uh, the lettering in the book? I'm, I have no idea who the letterer is at this point. I think Clayton did. I think Clayton did the lettering for for volume one. So I'm just wondering if he did the for volume two. I'm assuming it's going to be the same guy. He's he's great. I mean, he's really like he's he's really just a phenomenal letterer. Like to the point where you go, like, who's lettering this? Like, it's that good kind of work. So super exciting. So do you know when that volume two? Like, I mean, it, I mean, oh, uh, spring, spring next year. Right, so spring, cool, awesome. That's super exciting, man. Because I think it's a how does it, I mean, like, I guess the question is, how does it feel to be a part of like something that is so sort of like transcendent in, in you know, in scope? Uh, I, this is going to sound a little ridiculous, but I, I want to say this is honestly how I feel. I feel like I'm the guy, uh, I'm one of the people um, doing the wiring inside the Apollo 11 capsule for the navigation system. Yeah. Where it's like, the big star people are going to still be the ones who created uh, volume one, Kelly Sue and Phil. Mm. And uh, I need to make sure that if I screw up, the mission's going to fail at some point. <laughs> so I need to make sure I don't screw up. That's a, a great way to put a lot of pressure on yourself, but it's, I, but it's also <laughs> super clear. Um, that's cool. So you, so you wrote, I, so, I mean, I, you've written stuff you did, did um, May. Uh, May. Yeah. yeah. M-A-E. Yeah. Um, are, are you doing any more write, like work that you're going to be writing? Um, and Not immediately. Okay. I was actually, uh, 
I was working on a project where I was going to write it myself. Uh, it's going to be for the middle grade or YA market as a yep. graphic novel. Yep. And then I had a conversation. Uh, I was on a panel in Baltimore with a writer uh, who does um, middle uh, YA graphic novels. Mm -hmm. And she was so impressed with how she talked about stuff that I read her books immediately afterward. I'm not going to name the names, but if you really want to research, you can figure this out pretty easily okay. from online resources. Um, and then I read the some of the books she'd done, and I was like, wow, she is not just talking the talk. She is writing the, the walk. Um, mm -hmm. They were fantastic. Um, and I contacted her and said, hey, would you like to try to maybe collaborate on something someday? And she said, okay, let's think about it. So we're actually going to hang out, hopefully, at C2E2 and nice. see if anything comes from that. Oh, so. Cool. Fingers crossed, but yeah, uh, but that kind of blew up my plan of writing something myself because I threw an idea at her and she's like, oh, let's let's play with that. But she oh, will write cool. it and she will then twist it in ways that will make it unrecognizable from the pile of note cards I have pinned to a piece of cardboard inside my studio. Whatever works. Whatever Which works. if she doesn't do that, that would be wrong. She, it's her job to make it her own. Right. If if she if she, if, she, if she decides to go forward with this with me, yeah, we we I mean we we had the Hope Larson on a few a, f a couple of months ago, and she's just a brilliant you know writer with her with her YA uh, graphic novels, and uh, we also have Rebecca Mock, who is our artist mm. for a bunch of these, and it's a great mar it's a great great market in it plat you know I don't know what you want to call it, but I mean like I I love. I love the single story graphic novel. I love that yeah. we have these now. Um, we need more of them. Like we just need, yeah. we need more ways of telling concise stories to readers rather than just ongoing epics, which are fine, but I think we need to have both. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And just having, yeah. I mean, this is the dream we had in comics in the nineties of like, yeah. okay. There's a certain point where um, I can't remember his name right now, the guy from the Savage Dragon, was Eric. arguing the reason we do superheroes in American comics is because it is the perfect uh, subject matter for a comic book. Nothing, there's nothing better you can do with a comic book than tell a superhero story. And yeah, you can try to, occasionally people can tell a great story about something that's not a superhero in American comics, but it's not necessarily worth the effort. And I don't think it's where the industry's headed. And this was a serious discussion in the nineties. Yeah. And the explosion of YA and middle grade graphic novels now mm -hmm. we're like literally in a single year 10% or more of every graphic well yeah 10% of all graphic novel sales will literally be um dogman daft pilkey uh dogman graphic yep. novels about a man with a dog head yes. uh making poop jokes yeah yes but it's brilliant it is yeah. really well done poop jokes it's good yeah. Well, that's, I, I, you know, I mean, I think it was one of those things where like when you do see things like, you know, the, the, the manga world or you see the, the, the European world, like the breadth of stories that are being told is, is, is you know, endless. And I, oh. and we, we need that here. Yeah. I'll say I love the European album market and I love uh, the manga market, but something that's really important to note is both of those industries are shrinking. Oh, and really? They have been for decades. Yeah. Interesting. It's like uh, Japan is literally running out of young people. Well, okay, that's true. You're literally. Right. Yeah, literally. Um, yeah. And that means you have less young artists creating brilliant ideas. You have too many people at the top management of comic book companies saying, why do we need to make opportunities for young people? You don't have enough young readers. Uh, Europe also, 
if you talk to a European writer, writer, comics writer, or comics artist, um, they'll talk about how if you're not on a franchise of something like uh, doing uh, Asterix comics or something yeah. like that, yeah, it's hard to get a new property actually published in Europe, no matter how brilliant the idea. Well, let's let's, let's hope the YA market, you know, just keep sort of is the supporting, you know, backbone for a while as we can, you know, we, creators can develop more and more uh, out there and hopefully, you know, sort of challenge the paradigm. Uh, we don't want, you know, we don't have to, we're not talking about destroying the thing. We just want to offer more for the world. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And also, but also we're, we're, every year we're creating new properties and the kids are demanding, saying more, yeah, more. Yeah. this is not happening anywhere else in the world yeah no it, it's i mean it's super exciting and there's there's just and there's a whole breadth of creators out there who like honestly who who knew where they came from which i'm yeah totally I mean, fine with because it's like there's an avenue for the for, for this creation to come yeah. um well we have all this this sprouting of this uh these new comics talents coming up right now who grew up on some superhero stuff but also a lot of uh reina telgemeier mm -hmm. and uh jeff smith bone comics right Yep, and without these people and uh, yeah, uh, Gene Liu and Yang, uh, yeah, without those three people like that, mm -hmm. yeah, we'd still be a shrinking industry because yeah. we wouldn't have new creators and we wouldn't have the new readers. Yeah, and we, and we, you know, and like I mean, you know, what is it that? Uh, oh come on, what was the thing that? Uh, old brain, old brain, can't remember. Mm -hmm. But like, but we're getting old you know, Sean, the book that Sean that Sean Phillips just did this last year. Um, they did a graphic novel. Um, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips did. Oh, yeah. Right. I'm blanking on the title. But anyway, but like they're doing the grown up versions of these books and they're yeah. and they're doing well. And we just need to keep kind of like putting that out there because there's such an opening for this. And I think, you know, a 64 page, you know, Wonder Woman epic. That's a that's a big statement. You know, like yeah. these are these are not small you know, monthly, you know, stapled comics that were, you know, which are my, you know, some, they're what I read all the time. So uh, I think it's great. Um, we won't hold you up any longer. Uh, quick question. If you were an action figure, what three hmm. accessories would you have? Oh, well, I mean, uh, somewhere in the studios for reflection reference, I have a silver surfer uh, figure. Um, so a flying surfboard would be awesome. Okay, uh, that's awesome. That's a pretty good one. Uh, let me see. Um, action figure. Uh, man. Uh, <laughs> a small, tiny. Hold on a second. <laughs> He's gonna show it. Yeah. Uh, this happens to be a bottle of sake, but uh, it doesn't have to be sake. It has a small bottle of liquor. Okay. Small liquor bottle. That's, awesome. <laughs> that's perfect. Surf, flying surfboard. Bottle of liquor. He's gonna be drunk while he's surfing. Well, it doesn't yeah. mean he has In to be space. That's awesome. Okay, wait a minute. Uh, also, there was one musician where I began following her career because I thought her the first cover I ever saw of one of her albums lying around in a friend's room was so awesome. Okay. Uh, Nico Case's uh, um, it's like "This Storm Loves You." You know, I can't remember the name of the album right now. Yeah. But anyway, she's that. on an old Plymouth muscle car, crouched on the hood, holding an actual sword. Do you want the card or do you want the car or the sword, Gene? Oh, the girl. Oh, sword. So yeah. Uh, or the girl. <laughs> yeah, the black, yeah. Uh magic sword. Okay. I mean, or it could be a glowing baseball. Actually, glowing baseball bat. That's even better. Okay, glowing baseball bat. Oh, yeah. now, now you're talking to me. <laughs> <sword laughs> and a bottle of liquor. 
dude that 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 action figure is gonna sell gangbuster <laughs> i love it that's fantastic well that's sweet so c2e2 k9 next weekend not this weekend but next weekend silver surfer surfboard shot yeah. look for the silver surfboard floating Kevin above matchsticks glowing bat yep yeah uh, also, there's the album cover. Uh, Middle Cyclone by Nico Case. There you go. And oh, she's... yeah. Nice. Is yeah, that a, val- nice. I think it's a Valiant? Or is that a Barracuda? Uh, I'm not sure. It's either a but, Valiant uh, or a yeah, Barracuda. I just, the, I just created this whole story in my head of like, oh, she's on an intelligent car like Knight Rider. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then she crouches on the hood with her magic sword. And then I was like, like building this whole post oh, awesome. story through the character hey, let's was. Hold on, hold on to that for your YA graphic novel, <laughs> your yes. own writing. Um, You're going to write and this. So, and then we'll look for, everyone can look forward to seeing uh, Wonder Woman, or Historia Wonder Woman Volume 2, the Amazons. Reorder those words to the right order on your own yeah. mind um, in the spring. And and it was great talking with you, Gene. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um We'll 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 shake hands when we can shake hands at a at a convention near you one day. Rub elbows. Yeah, <laughs> rub elbows or whatever we do. But good luck with the last six pages. Fingers crossed. I. <laughs> yeah, and good luck with the Kickstarter. I mean, yeah, if you're listening, yeah, I mean, I'm assuming you're also one of those Kickstarters where there's a little tip jar saying even if you're not going to purchase something. Oh yeah, we love the goodwill. And if you just want to put in two dollars or five dollars to help out, yeah. make this anything, happen. Anything helps out because we're you know listen I'm you know we ha- we're working with some great indie young indie creators, um, and I'm just you know I want them to have a success and to have something that they can feel comfortable doing because I think it's you know Gary and I were like Gary and I would do this regardless. I think it's just a matter of like we want them everyone to feel rewarded for the time that they've put yes. into it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, man. Well, I appreciate it. Really appreciate it. It's great, great to meet you, and uh, and have a great. What is it? Tuesday. Have a great night. Oh yeah. <laughs> Woo! Yes, All right. And to everyone out there, see you later. All right, everyone. Take care. Uh, like, subscribe, follow Gene. Uh, go Gene Ha Comics, or find him at Gene Ha somewhere. Gene and GeneHog.com. He's out there. He's ever, he's available. Everyone, we will see you next week. Until then, ciao.